From the Christian Research Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina, you're listening to the Bible Answer Man broadcast with Hank Hanegraaff. We're on the air because life and truth matter. The mission of the Christian Research Institute is to equip believers to answer life's essential questions soundly and persuasively, and to give the reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. For more information, go online to equip.org. The following program was pre-recorded. And now, here's Bible Answer Man host, Hank Hanegraaff. Thank you very much, Randy, and we'll be going to your calls in just a few moments. Our contact information on the webequip.org and via the mailbox 8500, Charlotte, North Carolina, zip code 28271. As always, a resource consultant standing by as well, 888 and the letters C-R-I. Many of you hanging on, we'll go right to our phone callers. First up is Margie. She's listening in Seattle, Washington on KCIS. Hi, Margie. Hi. What do you think of the Jimmy Swaggart ministries? Yeah, Jimmy Swaggart was very, very popular years ago. But then he distanced himself from the authority of his former denomination, the Assemblies of God, in fact, referred to it as a cult and alleged that some of its officials were in league with pornographers. So he really distanced himself from ecclesiastical authority, and he has come up with all kinds of weird and wacky doctrines. In the meantime, he espouses that within the Godhead there are three separate and distinct persons, each one having his own personal spirit body, whatever that is, his own personal soul, and his own personal spirit. In essence, what he's teaching is a form of tritheism, three separate gods. In fact, believes that God's body is in one place at one time. The Bible, contrary to Jimmy Swaggart, says that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So his views in many ways are more similar to Mormonism than Christianity at a very strategic juncture, and that has to do with the nature of God. So don't have high regards or high marks for his ministry. Yeah. Now, when he fell and had to come away from the Assembly of God Church, what did he do at that time? Well, I don't typically get into the indiscretions of Christian leaders in terms of their moral failures. I try to stick with their theology, but he was defrocked by the Assemblies of God for moral failure. Uh-huh. What year was that, do you know? Uh, it was back in uh, 1988, I believe. 88, uh-huh. And, uh, but God forgave him. I've heard him say that he fell flat on his face. And uh, God did forgive him. And uh, so do you think he's eligible to be in the ministry now? Well, I think that God forgives and he can continue to use people. But I do think that when you go through the process, there ought to be a process. And he abdicated being part of that process. He did it unilaterally, and that's why he distanced himself from the Assemblies of God. But does yeah. God forgive people and continue to use them? Of course, there are many examples of that in Scripture. David comes to mind. The quintessential king of Israel had great moral failings, not only in terms of 
what he did sexually, but also in terms of what he did in terms of taking a census, where he trusted the arm of man as opposed to trusting the arm of God. So many failures, and yet when he sincerely repented, and his great statement of repentance is in Psalm 51, God continued to use him. Now there were consequences to his sin. They followed inexorably like night follows day, but God did forgive him and continues to use him to this very day. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Well, you are most welcome. I appreciate your call. Muta next in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, CJCA. Hi, Muta. Hi, Hank. My question is on what happens after we die. I hear a lot of Christian folks say so-and-so has gone to be with the Lord or so-and-so is looking down at us from heaven. But then I also hear, like, you know, there's a song that goes the dead in Christ shall rise and meet him in the air, where it kind of implies that there's a literal, there's one literal day of resurrection. So which is which day? Yeah, both and. It is true that if you were to die today as a believer, you'd be absent from the body present with the Lord. However, it is also true that in the Christian faith, we long for a day of resurrection. Jesus said, do not be amazed at this. A time is coming when all who are in the graves will come out. Some will rise to live and some will rise to be eternally condemned. So what happens at the second appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the souls of those who are on the presence of God now are reunited with their bodies, those bodies resurrected, immortal, imperishable, incorruptible. Okay. So both are true. If you were to die today as a believer... Your body would be buried. The non-physical aspect of your humanity would be in the presence of the Lord. And then when the Lord appears a second time, which is yet future, then the soul returns to the body, and that body is resurrected as communicated in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oh, okay, I see, I see. Okay, I understand. Now, now then, uh, where do we fit the judgment day? Yes, well, when Jesus appears a second time, What he does is he judges, which is to say there is a great white throne judgment, and that judgment is both for those who are going to be separated from him for all eternity and for those who are in Christ. So what Paul says with respect to those who are in Christ is that there's only one foundation, and that foundation is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but on that foundation you can build. And you can build either using gold, silver, and costly stones by way of analogy or inferior products, wood, hay, and stubble. And the day of the Lord will reveal with what kind of materials you were building. And if what you have built survives, you will receive reward. If not, you will suffer loss. And the way Paul explains it is people escaping burning buildings with little more than charred clothes upon their back. So they will be saved, but as one escaping through the flames, says the Apostle Paul. So again, at the great white throne judgment, there are degrees of reward for those who have been faithful and degrees of punishment for those who are damned. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Hank. You got it. I've written about this in detail in my book, Afterlife, What You Need to Know About Heaven, the Hereafter, and near-death experiences. Back to the phone lines. We'll talk next to Mike in Franklin, Tennessee. Hi, Mike. 
Hello, Hank. I'd like to get your take on the Lordship Salvation controversy. I'm sure you've probably addressed this many times, but uh, I've not heard it and would appreciate knowing where you stand on that. Sure. I like what Dallas Willard said with respect to this debate. The key difference to emphasize in this intellectual debate concerns whether or not we are alive to God. Are we trusting in the real person of Jesus Christ such that we have confidence in him in every dimension of our real life? Or are we trusting some arrangement for sin remission set up through him, trusting only in his role as guilt remover? And I think that the reason he made this dichotomy is because he was pointing out how significant it is not just to have an intellectual head fake, where you give intellectual agreement to certain logical truth propositions, but rather that you are living the engrafted life of Christ, that you are one who no longer lives to self, but has died to self and now lives to Christ. And this is what Peter talks about as well in terms of being a partaker of the divine nature. So Christ not only died to save us from our sins, he lives to give us life in the present. And I think that's the important distinction. Yes, I uh, believe that uh, the scriptures talk about in John chapter 5, verse 56, talks about abiding in Christ. And I think that is really what you're saying, if I understand you correctly. Well, that's right. I mean, and it is Christ's life engrafted into our life, so that we are no longer living. It is Christ who is living through us. And oftentimes this is called not just a changed life, but an exchanged life, the life of Christ within. Yeah, it's a beautiful but yet awesome concept. And, you know, I'm still as a believer, trying to get my arms around that. But uh, uh, new insights every day, and I appreciate your uh, comment on that. You got it. And the key to understand here is that a lot of people think that all they need to do is pray a prayer or be part of a particular formula. And once they've done that, then they're in. It's as though they have purchased an insurance policy. The point however, that must be emphasized is that the Christian faith is a life. It is, again, the life of Christ within. So it's not just a formula. It is living the life of Christ, dying to self, taking up your cross, daily following Him. Thank you, Hank. You got it. Thank you so much for your call. Be back in just a moment with more answers. You may not know his name. A lot of people don't but he's largely responsible for poisoning the minds of an entire generation of Americans. The effects of that poison are felt and seen throughout our culture today. Worse still, the effects of his work are likely to be felt for generations to come. His name is Howard Zinn. And if you care about America's past and our future, being able to debunk Zinn's revisionist history is essential. To receive your copy of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America, call 888-7000-CRI and make a gift to support the Christian Research Institute's life-changing outreaches, 888-7000-CRI, or visit us at equip.org. That's equip.org. 
We'll be back in just a moment with more from Hank Hanegraaff. The number of wolves surrounding the Christian flock is growing, and they relish nothing more than docile sheep utterly incapable of defending themselves. From militant secularists at home to militant Islamists abroad, the assaults on biblical Christianity are growing dangerously. But Christian Research Institute support team members aren't in favor of feeding these wolves. Instead, each day they're making possible an array of outreaches that defang these wolf packs with solid arguments and evidence that have stood the test of time. What's more, support team members are equipping themselves with CRI's Equipping Essentials, a hand-picked collection of the best apologetics tools around. Your selection of resources, along with a complimentary subscription to the Christian Research Journal, are just our way of saying thanks. To learn more about the benefits of membership, simply visit equip.org. Once again, that's equip.org. God spoken? Are the words of Scripture merely human in origin, or are they in fact the very words of God Himself? Three years in the making and based on two decades of research and reflection, Hank Hanegraaff's monumental book, Has God Spoken?, answers what is surely the most important question facing our world. In Has God Spoken? Memorable Proofs of the Bible's Divine Inspiration, Hank counters the contentions of the Bible attackers and clearly shows that belief in the Holy Scriptures is not a guess or wishful thinking. It is the only logical conclusion after an honest examination of overwhelming evidence. Order Has God Spoken? from the Christian Research Institute by calling 888-7000-CRI or go online to equip.org. Equip Org. Truth Matters, Life Matters More details Hank Hanegraaff's personal pilgrimage from his long defense of truth to his discovery that life matters more. Essentially two books in one, part one equips Christians to defend the essential truths of the historic Christian faith. Part two explains why truth is necessary but hardly sufficient. That the map is not the territory, the menu is not the meal, we are created to experience life to the full through union with God in Christ. Is there more to the Christian life than what you are experiencing? Truth Matters, Life Matters More unveils the unexpected beauty of an authentic Christian life. To receive Truth Matters, Life Matters More for yourself or as a terrific gift to a friend or loved one, call 888-7000-CRI and make a gift to support the Christian Research Institute's life-changing outreaches. 888-7000-CRI or visit us online at equip.org. Let's return to your host, Hank Hanegraaff. Thank you very much, Randy. We're back to the phone lines. We'll talk to Cindy, listening in Iowa. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Hank. Hey, I was wondering, what was the motive or the meaning behind Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, you can imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ was feeling something horrendous, the weight of the sin of all humanity. It must have been something that we cannot fathom. I mean, we can't even grasp what it would be 
to not only die for your sin, my sin, but for the sins of the world. So he was making it possible for humanity to be reconciled to a holy God. And we can, again, imagine that Christ, who voluntarily took on the limitations of humanity, would have in his active consciousness a real feeling of being forsaken by the Father as he's bearing in his body the sins of the world. But that would not in any way suggest some kind of an ontological break in the Godhead. The omnipresent God of the Bible is infinite and one in essence. And that's why we worship God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. The whole three persons are eternal together and co-equal, as the Creed of Athanasius puts it. So what's going on here when Jesus says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's drawing attention to Psalm 22. And when he does so, he's not just drawing attention to the first words of Psalm 22, but to the entirety of the psalm. And if you go through the psalm, you'll find around verse 24 that he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. So there's no sense whatsoever that God was forsaking Jesus Christ in the sense of the Godhead no longer being intact, but rather there is a sense of understanding on our part the full weight of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. Thank you very much. You got it. Thank you for your call. Back to the phone lines. We'll talk next to Terry in Richmond, Virginia. Hi, Terry. Hi, Hank. Uh, thanks again for taking my call. I'm, I have a, an odd question. Last weekend was in a conversation with people who are um, uh, great, strong believers and um, study Scripture, and this young man uh, said with great conviction, it is not biblical to thank people. We are only to give thanks to God. And to thank people is really to put them in place of God. So I'm interested to know if you've ever heard that before, if, how you feel about that, is there anything in Scripture that points you in that direction? Well, I think that what you can say to this individual is that the Bible is replete with commands to give thanks to God. You see this in the Psalms, you see this in Paul's letter where he gives thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ. And giving thanks is therefore as natural as breathing for a committed Christian. However, having said that, what I would do is point this person to the other side of the coin. Paul may not explicitly say thank you in his letters when he's showing clear thank you for the believers being generous in their giving, but that's precisely what he's doing. He's commending and thanking the Macedonian believers for their faithfulness in giving. And he points out that they've been faithful not only in giving because they had resources to give, but he's thankful that they were willing to give out of their own need. So the idea that we cannot thank those who have been faithful 
is simply spurious. I am thankful and grateful in my heart every day for those that support the ministry. In fact, I pray every single day thanking God for those that stand with us shoulder to shoulder in the battle for life and truth. So thanking people is wholly appropriate. And while the exact words may not appear in Scripture, the sentiment is most certainly there. Okay. I really appreciate that. I know that you uh, spend a lot of time um, deeply engaged in the study of Scripture, and so I, I do trust your, uh, your comments. And I want to approach this correctly because the young man who said it is soon to be my son-in-law. Well, you know, here's one of the things that I appreciate. First of all, your recognition that I am spending time in the Word of God, but nonetheless, I think that what I say ought to be tested in light of Scripture, just like what anyone says, because I'm not the final court of arbitration, it is the Word of God. So what you're doing is you're checking these things out, and then you have to test and see if what I'm saying holds weight from a biblical perspective. I certainly did that first. <laughs> I mean, I, I went directly to Scripture, and and I have a study Bible, and so I, I you know, went through the, the index and looked for gratitude and read dozens of verses where it was clear that we were being exhorted to give thanks. Yes. To be grateful and to... Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I'm not a young person. I'm I feel very confident that giving thanks is absolutely what is expected of us, and Jesus personified that, and Paul wrote about it. Absolutely. And so I'm, I'm, um, and of course it is in Proverbs and in the Psalms, and uh, so I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, this is going to be an interesting set of conversations we have about this. Sure. Yeah. It involves people who are dear to me. Absolutely. And iron sharpens iron, and in the discussion, hopefully you will help sharpen your future son-in-law. I hope so, too. Thanks very much. You got it. Thank you so much for your call. Back to the phone lines. We'll talk to Katie in Missouri. Hi. Hello. Hi. Uh, I have been a longtime fan, but a first-time caller, and I appreciate you taking my call. Um, it's, it's amazing that I have signal. I'm so far out in the country. <laughs> I have my phone in the window and on speakerphone just to hold the signal. So oh, wow. I'll make this quick. Um, I, I don't even have TV signal, but thank God I have FM. <laughs> but uh, my question, I was reading in First uh, John about uh, the sins and how we are to act accordingly uh, to someone um, you know, it says, you know, there are sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death. Uh, and I was wondering, um, you know, is there a listing of, of these, of which ones, or is, is it just talking about uh, the Ten Commandments and the spiritual death? Sure. What's going on here, and you have to look at the context of the passage that you're reading, in fact, the entirety of the epistle, the epistle of John, this is John's first epistle. He has three, and all he has five books in the Bible. You have the Gospel of John, you have the book of Revelation, you have the three epistles, and this is the first epistle again. And the context of this epistle is life. And typically, 
what is being underscored is eternal life, and therefore the sin unto death would appear to be a sin leading one away from eternal life. And in that vein, there are two distinct possibilities. One is hating your brothers and your sisters and failing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ being the other. So if you hate your brother and your sister who you have seen, how can you truly say that you love God? So that love theme here in the epistle points to the fact that if you are not willing to forgive and truly love your brothers and sisters, either biological or in Christ, then how can you say you truly love God? And if you don't truly love God, then you're not one of those who are redeemed by the precious blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the other, as I said, is to believe in the real Jesus as opposed to going after false doctrine, another theme that is prevalent in this epistle. Now, in this sense, then, the sin unto death is failing to become a participant in the kingdom and a follower of Jesus Christ, because once you follow Jesus Christ, then you begin to follow the precepts of the kingdom. And the greatest of those precepts is to love God, and the second like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. The sin unto death is failing to love God, failing to follow Jesus Christ, failing to recognize that he is the one who can save you from your sins and give you life not only now but for all eternity. And the second like unto it is to love your neighbor as yourself. So those are the things I think that John is driving at in this epistle, the sin unto death. The great thing about the sin unto death, if there could be a great thing that could be said about it, is that it is not an act. It is a continuous, willful rejection of the love and grace that could be yours. I'm out of time for this edition of the Bible Answer Man broadcast. Look forward to seeing you next time with more of the show. Please continue to stand shoulder to shoulder with us in the battle for life and truth. Thanks for joining us for the Bible Answer Man broadcast with Hank Hanegraaff. Our daily commitment here at CRI is to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints and equip believers to become true disciples of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to order resources or listen to the broadcast online, visit our website at equip.org. That's equip.org. Or call a resource consultant at 888-7000-274. Of course, you can write to CRI at Post Office Box 8500, Charlotte, North Carolina, zip code 28271. The preceding program was pre-recorded. The Bible Answer Man broadcast is supported by listeners like you. We're on the air because life and truth matter. Anyone who's been paying attention knows there's a war going on, not just on traditional morality, civility, and decency, but even more fundamentally on historic notions of truth. And the enemy isn't just the onslaught of fake news facilitated by a post-truth culture and turbocharged by growing legions of ideological spin doctors. No, the real enemies of truth range from postmodernist convictions that there is no objective truth to militant scientism that claims that only science can determine truth and religion is little more than primitive 
superstitions, but CRI support team members are not waving a white flag of surrender. They're holding the fort by undergirding every one of Christian Research Institute's mind-shaping and life-changing outreaches 24-7. To learn how you can make a difference and enjoy all the benefits of support team membership, simply visit equip.org.